Well, as we prepare our hearts to receive communion this morning, it's such a great reminder of, well, the body and blood of Christ. That's what it's supposed to be as the body representing Jesus Christ and his stripes that he had received, the brutal beating that he had experienced there at the cross. But the word of God tells us in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament that is by his stripes we are healed. And so there is just an amazing special work in the recognition of the body that it's by his stripes we are healed. Sometimes we come to the Lord because we are physically sick and we need his help to recover over an illness or to give us strength in our physical bodies. But there are other times, and it should be at all times, when we recognize also our spiritual need of healing for the Lord to touch us spiritually and to remember by his stripes we are healed. Now the interesting thing in the Old Testament where we find that verse of scripture, it tells us by his stripes you are healed, that it's already finished, it's a finished work. In the New Testament, you were healed. That it has us looking forward to the cross and then has us looking back to the cross, intersecting in the middle is Jesus Christ. He brings healing through his body. And so, Father, we thank you for the body that you provided for a sacrifice, the Lamb of God, your only begotten Son. Lord Jesus, we are thankful that you were willing to be the sacrifice, and Lord, that through your stripes we are, we were healed, as Scripture tells us. And so bless us, Lord, now as we take this bread to represent your body, which was broken for us. You may eat the bread. When we come to the cup, Testaments, where it tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin, no forgiveness of sin. And so again, we have the testimony of the Old Testament pointing forward to the work of Jesus upon the cross. And then we have the testimony there in the New Testament looking back to the work of Jesus upon the cross and the importance of the blood. It is through the blood that God has given the covering, the forgiveness of sin, And apart from the blood, there is no forgiveness. There is no remission. So this morning we recognize the importance of the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for us. As the Bible tells us, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. And so, Father, as we receive this cup, we thank you, Lord, that you provided a way. At the fall of Adam and Eve, you killed an animal. You provided what many believe was the skin and the clothing of a lamb to cover Adam and Eve. They had tried to cover themselves, Lord, with with a, a man-made object. And Lord, however we might try to cover our sins apart from you, it just does not work. An animal had to be killed. Blood had to be shed. You set up the example And then you, Lord, 
sent your only begotten son, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your willingness to come, that you are the divine sacrifice, that you died, you were buried, and that you rose again. And Lord, it is through your blood that we are cleansed from our sins and that we are covered and made pure. You may drink the cup. So, Father, we thank you for these gifts of the communion. As Scripture tells us, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so, Lord Jesus, as we close out this communion service, we are looking back to the work that you did upon your cross. But, Lord, we're also looking forward to your second coming. We proclaim his death until he comes. And we pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. In the name of Jesus, amen. I want to run through a couple of announcements before we get into our teaching this morning. But if you want to go ahead and uh, get into the text, Revelation chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 14. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. But before we get to that, just a couple of things. Uh, This coming Wednesday, we'll be looking at Genesis chapters 4 through 6. I know you're thinking, there's no way, Pastor John, you can't do it. Three chapters of the Bible. Well, chapter 5 is genealogy. And I don't know about you, but I sometimes kind of shut down reading through the genealogies of the Old Testament. Because in the genealogies are a bunch of names that... They're mentioned once in the Bible. It's like, yeah, well, okay. So I think we can kind of move through chapter 5 fairly quickly. If not, we'll be doing chapters 4 and 5. But uh, I think we'll be able to get through these three chapters. So ruling over the title of this Wednesday evening study. Also, I want to remind you, family, family camp coming up. I can't say it, but it is coming up. And it's going to be August 6th through the 8th. And this will be 10 years in a row. Even last year during COVID, we had 88 people show up for family camp, which was pretty amazing um, considering all that was going on. And we had a blessed time. And Travis Lee and his family, they're coming back to lead worship for us. I think they come back because they like family camp. They actually told us This is the only camp that we've experienced where family camp was actually families camping together and mom and dad were not simply dropping off the kids and leaving. And so we say family purposely. You're supposed to be here with your families. That's coming up and there's a sign-up sheet on the lobby. I'm sure Dave would love to know and also Lily and Melissa, they'll be prepping for our meals. Got four meals to cook for family camp so it's important that uh, we have, we always have enough food, but it's important that we know the count. And so you can begin filling that out for us. And also I'd like to just uh, clue you in on last week's World News Briefing, Tom Hughes and David Tal. David Tal is an Israeli citizen. He's been in the United States for almost a month now, but... On World News Briefing, you can find it online there. The information's in our bulletin. But if you're listening on the radio or watching through Facebook, just 
Look up his channel and you'll find World News Briefing, his channel, World News Briefing. There's a lot going on in Israel right now. And uh, the eyes of the world, once again, upon the nation of Israel. And there's been some mysterious things happening, like the largest naval ship of Iran sinking this week. How did that happen? Well, some might say that Israel had their hand in that, but nobody's actually saying what happened at this point. But uh, I thought it was an interesting, I've already listened to it, with David Tal being from Israel to hear his take on things going on in the U.S. and also what's going on in his own country in Israel. The interesting thing that both here in the United States and in Israel now, it appears that we already know here in the United States that we have a very liberal government, and that is about to happen in Israel as Netanyahu is just within a week's time of being put out of office. So how will that play out when on the world stage we have people going far to the left? Well, I think it's playing out in just as God said that one day there'll be a one world government. And that's why we're going through the book of Revelation. Here on Sunday mornings, we're going to get a glimpse of the last days according to the book of Revelation, according to Jesus Christ. So today, it brings us to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 22. And then with the seven churches of Asia, we're going to look at what some view, the historical view of the seven churches, how they played out in history. So here we find in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, it actually consists of seven letters that Jesus dictated to John to send to the seven churches within Asia. There were more churches than just the seven, but these seven churches became representative, representative of what was going on in the church age at that time. Some believe that at the writing of this, it was some 60 years after the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection. Some place it Actually, the writing of this before the fall of Jerusalem, I fall into the camp where I believe that it was after the fall of Jerusalem. The Apostle John receiving this vision from the Lord was banished to the Isle of Patmos. According to tradition, he was the oldest of the apostles. He lived the longest of the apostles. And the Lord gave him this vision while on the Isle of Patmos. And then he would eventually, according to tradition, be released and then go and finish his days in Ephesus and then compose the Gospel of John. Now, that's all tradition, but here we have in Scripture what the Lord said to the churches. And so far, we have looked at the church of Ephesus, who had left their first love, the church of Smyrna, who was a persecuted church, they were actually rich in faith. And we find the church of Pergamos who had allowed the doctrines of Balaam and the Nicolaitans to creep into their fellowship. The church of Thyatira, though they seemed to have redeeming qualities, they allowed the teachings of Jezebel to enter into their church. And the Lord condemned them for that. And the church of Sardis, they had a name that meant life. But Jesus said, you are actually dead 
And finally, we looked at previously last week, the church of Philadelphia. And Jesus said to them, although you have little strength, I have set before you an open door, an open door of ministry. Today, we're going to look at the last of the seven churches of the book of Revelation. We're going to look at the church of Laodicea, and we know them as the lukewarm church. I remind you through this study that each letter has a similar format. At the beginning, we find Jesus introducing himself. And so it's proper when writing the letter to someone that there is an introduction, especially there in the Bible. We usually save that to the end of our letters today. But Jesus gave an introduction of himself, a descriptive picture of the Lord that often came from chapter 1 in the book of Revelation. And then secondly, Jesus told the churches, he says, I know, I know. Don't you like to know that the Lord knows? It's good to know that God knows. But think about it on a personal level. If the Lord would come to you and say, John, I know. It's like, I know you know, Lord, and forgive me for those things that you know. And often for five of the seven churches, there were things that needed to be restored. There was repentance that needed to take place. For two of the seven, they were walking in fellowship with God, and the Lord had no condemnation of them, but only commended them. And finally, Jesus gave promises to the overcomers. One of the things that stood out to me the most, I think, going through the letters of the seven churches, is that the Lord Jesus was there in the midst of the seven candlesticks. In chapter 1, verse 20, the Lord said, The seven candlesticks represent the seven churches. And so even though, even like with the lukewarm church, the Lord said, I am there, I'm in your midst. But for those who had overcome, he gave promises. So even in the dead church or the lukewarm church or those who had gone after false doctrines, Jesus was still present within the body of those believers Even though they had went astray, he was the good shepherd who was watching over his sheep, calling them to repentance, as we find today with the lukewarm church. So today we're going to look at a message I entitled, The Lukewarm and the Historic View, Revelation 3, verses 14 through 22. And then we're going to see the lukewarm church of Laodicea in verses 14 through 22. And then we're going to have an historic view of the seven churches of Revelation. And so I want to go ahead and just uh, read through our first verse. I want to open us in prayer. And also for those who would like to support our ministry, if you're listening on the radio or looking online, watching online, I guess, um, you can go to cclv.org forward slash donate, and you can find out the information needed there. To support our ministry, cclv.org forward slash donate. For those who are here, of course, we have an agape box in the back. But I, COVID kind of changed how we have done things so much that I often forget to pray for the offering. It was always Kevin's job. And and he hasn't been on camera quite often uh, just because of how we've been doing things. He is in the back kind of. Uh, Not today because he's on vacation, but often he's in the back kind of making sure that the Facebook audience is um, being responded to as they ask questions as 
we go through the teaching. So I'll read verse 1 and open us in prayer, but also ask God to bless the gifts to this fellowship this day. So we read in Revelation 3, verse 14, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And so, Father, we do want to ask your blessing upon this fellowship today, Lord, those who are with us, those who are listening or watching via radio or online. However, Lord, we are gathered to worship you. Lord, we pray that you would bless the teaching of your word today. Lord, that we would hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, to this church, this day, we pray. And also, Lord, we ask for the gifts that are given to this fellowship, Lord, that you would help us to use them for your glory, for the kingdom work that you've called us to do. We thank you, Lord, for the provision that you have given us over the last year plus. And Lord, I'll go all the way back to the 26 plus years that we've been a church. Lord, you've always provided for this place. Maybe not always as we have anticipated, but Lord, you've brought us this far. And we give you praise for that. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless the offerings that are given for the work of the ministry that you've called us to here in your church. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Laodicea was at a major crossroad in Asia Minor. As I've said, Asia Minor today in modern day Turkey, the city itself was situated on a hill overlooking a fertile valleys. It had majestic mountains. It's always beautiful. We don't get that here in Illinois. You look out across our countryside, you see corn or soybeans. And that's about it. Uh, every once in a while, there'll be clouds coming up over Lake Michigan, like the water temperature of the lake is so cold that it produces this cloud line east of us here. And I'll look across there, and I'll remember the days that I lived in California, and it was rare there as well. What would happen in California, they would rain like a few times a year. And when it rained, it knocked down all the smog, and when it knocked down the smog, you could see the mountains, and they were gorgeous. But you had to wait for those special days. Every once in a while, I'll look to the east, and I'll see the clouds rising up over the chilling waters of Lake Michigan, and it will have that mountain-like. It will remind me of that. Well, Laodicea was a city that had the valleys and the mountains, a beautiful place. It was a wealthy center of industry. It produced this black wool garment. It also had an eye ointment that they made where people believe that through this ointment that those who are blind or maybe uh, just aging and couldn't see as well anymore that they traveled to the city. They purchased this product. It could help them to have sight. They worshiped the God of Zeus and his son Apollos. They believed that Apollos actually spoke to them through oracles at that time. But the church in Laodicea, they had become complacent and they became lukewarm according to the word of the Lord, much like the church here in the United States today. As the Lord spoke to them, he reminded them that he is the amen, that he is the faithful and true witness, and he is the beginning of the creation of God. Three things that the Lord reminded the church there in Laodicea. First, he said, I am the amen. 
Now, the word amen, it has Hebrew origin. In fact, amin is the Hebrew word, and we just kind of a direct transliteration of the Hebrew word amen. That's where we get it from. It didn't come from any other language but the Hebrew language. And Jesus says, I am the amen. It's a word that means to be firm, trustworthy, faithful, and sure. A sad thing happened on January 3rd, 2021, with the 117th Congress. As they opened with prayer, a congressman, Emmanuel Cleaver, actually an ordained Methodist pastor, Wesley would be rolling over in his grave over this one. Now, he began his prayer well. He ended it horribly. This is his prayer. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon us and give us peace, peace in our families, peace across this land. And dare I ask, O Lord, peace even in this chamber now and evermore. No problems. We could pray that. In fact, he's taking that from the Old Testament as he began, the Lord lifting up his light upon his countenance upon us and giving us peace. That comes right from the Old Testament in the Arianic prayer that he would pray over the people. And here's where he went totally awry. He closed it saying this, We ask it in the name of the monotheistic God, Brahma, the gods known by many names and many different faiths. Monotheistic, meaning one God. The gods known, meaning many gods. This guy's very confused. It's either one God or many gods. You can't, can't have both. And then, as we know, he ended by saying, Amen and a woman. Well, there's only one Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ said, I am the Amen. I am that which is true, that which is faithful. I am the Amen. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God are in him, yes, in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. There's only one amen, it's Jesus Christ. He is also the faithful and true witness. And once again, Jesus refers to a description of himself that came from Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, where he is called there the faithful witness, and also Revelation 3, verse 7, where he told the church of Philadelphia that he is that who is true. So he is the faithful and the true. Jeremiah 2.5 tells us, let the Lord be a true and faithful witness between us. And Jesus is that faithful and true witness between mankind and God. The prayer of the, the prophet Jeremiah, let the Lord be a true and faithful witness between us. And Jesus said, I am the faithful and true witness. And then he said, I am the beginning of the creation of God. Now, many have taken this phrase, the beginning of the creation of God, and said that Jesus then is not co-equal with God, but is actually then created by God. It's not the meaning of the word. If you take it from the Greek, it has this sense of referring to the the first, but also that which begins, anything that begins to exist, that he has priority over, that he is the 
prototype. He is the one above them all. As it says in John 1, verses 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. The Lord Jesus Christ, there the beginning of the creation of God, with God in the beginning, and he is the source of all creation. So the introduction of himself, I am the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And then Jesus said, I know, verses 15 through 20. He says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. And I wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. Let's stop there for a moment. Well, growing up in the church, I have always been taught, growing up in the church, that is, that if you're hot, you're on fire for Jesus. If you're cold, you're near death. And that there's just stark contrast between. You're cold, you're not on fire, you're in a very bad place, poor place, and you're hot, man, you're right where you should be in your faith. But some scholars suggest that the Lord might have had a different approach on this. I actually understand this better. There are times where we want, the last couple of days, hitting 90, 92 degrees around here, a cold drink of water is really nice, especially if you've been out working in the yard and you're working up a sweat and you just have that cold drink of water. The other day I was working and Lily, when we got home, she was with me and uh, she went, got some ice, got some water and she said, this is for you. She didn't go to the stove, boil some water and uh, cool it down and say, this is for you. You know, lukewarm water wouldn't have satisfied in that situation. She knew what I needed. I needed some cold water, and I appreciated that cold drink of water. There are times we've been down where there's hot springs. I was in Hot Springs, Arkansas, there once, and uh, the water is so hot. You can see the coins that people have thrown in the water, and it doesn't look that deep. And I think, man, these could be like from 100 years ago. I'm going to go for it. I'm going to try it. And I, I tried like three times to get my hand deep enough to grab that money. Can't happen. Of course, after the first time, you already heated your arm up. It's only going to get worse the second and third time. Uh, I could stay down only a little while. But if you mix it in, and get to a place where the hot water is just right, that you can get in there. It's good for the body. One time I'd had four shoulder surgeries, both shoulders, two on both sides. And on the first shoulder surgery, we went to Hawaii and physical therapy said, you're not ready to travel yet. And it's like, well, we booked these, so we're going. And in the morning and at night, in the hot tub, I was soaking my shoulder, getting the jets on it. And when I came back and they said, I think your shoulder's actually better now than before you left, that it was good. The hot water is good. But where Laodicea was, they were actually between two contrasting uh, cities that had two different types of water. Colossae had this cool, cold drinking water. 
And then there was another spring nearby from another city that had this kind of like Hot Springs, Arkansas water. But by the time the water got to Laodicea, they actually had to bring the water in. By the time it got there, it was lukewarm. And lukewarm water just isn't good. Jesus said, I'd rather spew you out of my mouth because you're neither cold nor hot. I'd rather have you one way or the other. But you're lukewarm. You're nauseating to me. You're useless to me. The Laodicean believers needed to drink from the living water of Jesus Christ in order that they would never thirst again. That would cause the flow of living waters to come out of their hearts, according to John 4.10 and John 7.38 and 39. And this is Laodicea. Jesus said, because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. Because you say, I am rich. Laodicea, a compound word that means the people and that of the people's right to judge or people's justice. They had judged themselves as rich. They had judged themselves as needing nothing. But Jesus gave true judgment, saying that you are actually wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. To be wretched, according to the Greek, it speaks about being in an enduring trial or an enduring time of troubles. You're just at this place where You can't get out of the situation that you're in. It's much like Paul when he's thinking about his life before coming to Christ. In Romans 7, 24 and 25, he cried out, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul, thinking about his condition prior to coming to salvation, he said, O wretched man that I am in this place of enduring trial. And we have people who find themselves in a place of enduring trial. And there are those who are giving witness to them. What you need is Jesus. You need Jesus. And they think, no, what I need is some help from the government. If I can only get that extra paycheck, if I can only get a job, um, whatever the scenario, they keep looking everywhere but to Jesus. They're wretched. They're in this enduring state of trial and troubles. And they're refusing to look to Jesus. Jesus also said that they were miserable. It's a Greek word that means to be pitied. Job 19.21, Job said, have pity on me. Have pity on me. O you, my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. They were in this place where they should be crying out for pity, but they didn't realize it. They should have been crying out to the Lord, have pity on me but they did not realize their miserable condition. As far as being poor, in the Greek New Testament, there's two words that are translated as poor in the Greek New Testament. The first speaks about someone who they're poor, and although they're poor, through their labors, they can provide for themselves, maybe provide for their family, But by the time the end of the week is over, that's all they've done. They've provided for themselves. They've provided for their family. But they're poor, but they're living. They're providing at that minimum wage, we might say today. The second Greek word 
is translated in this sense, as someone who is poor, who cannot make it without the help of someone else. All their work, all their striving, all their trying cannot produce the needs that they have in their lives. They cannot fill those needs. It's the second Greek word that the Lord used here when he said, you are poor. You cannot make it on your own. It's the same word that God used in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 3, where he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor, those who recognize, Lord, I can't make it on my own. Laodicea did not recognize their spiritual poor condition. They also didn't recognize that they were blind. I had mentioned earlier in Laodicea, they made this Phrygian powder. They manufactured, they sold it all over Asia at that time. People believed by uh, putting this sob, this ointment on your eyes, that it would actually uh, heal blindness, improve sight. Uh, today, they've looked at this and said it did nothing. They were like medicine men that had some kind of cure that they sold, but it did nothing for the people. But it reminded me of Jesus when he came up on that scene where there was a man who was blind. He spit on the ground. He made a clay. He covered the man's eyes that he would be able to see and told him to wash it. They were blind, but they did not look to Jesus for the healing that was needed. We often do that. We refuse to look to Jesus. We look to the Lord. We look to our world, and we think that the answers are in the world, and sometimes there are answers in this world, but ultimately, Christ is over all things. We need to have that foundation of faith. And then finally, they were naked. Now, Adam and Eve were naked in the Bible, but there at the beginning, they were without sin. After the fall, they needed that covering, as I mentioned before communion, that they needed a covering to cover them because of their sin. The Laodiceans, in their nakedness, they refused to recognize their sinful condition before God, but Jesus saw them without the proper covering. At that point, his blood was not properly covering them. But remember, he's talking to the church here, so it's kind of interesting. They were in a horrible place, but the Lord was still in the midst of the church, even the church of Laodicea. And so Jesus counseled them. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and to anoint your eyes with the eye salve that you may see. So he counseled them to buy gold that was refined in the fire. Gold is the most mentioned precious metal in Scripture. And it symbolizes purity or incorruptibility. And here it stands for the purity of Christ and that which the Lord offered them, this gold that has been refined in the fire, refined through the Lord's death upon the cross, proven by his glorious resurrection as Peter recounted in 1 Peter 1, 7, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by the fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This purity, 
buy this gold refined in the fire, but also to purchase the white garments. Laodicea was known for the black garments that they produced. But Jesus said, no, I counsel you to buy from me white garments. Now, white stands as that as purity. Think about this. I don't know of any bride who has ever prepared for her wedding day and got her wedding gown and say she got it a month early. It actually fits. She's ready to go. And she decided, you know what, I'm just going to I'm going to start wearing this. Why just wear it one day? You know, why on this one special day? In fact, you know, my fiance and I, he wants to go to the park. And I think I'll wear my wedding dress to the park and maybe we'll play some frisbee golf and, and just have a great time. No, you want it unsoiled. You want it perfect. In fact, I often see some of the dresses as a pastor. I, I'm part of weddings quite often and I see how their trains are dragging and just kind of watch it get dirty throughout the course of the evening, but they protect it up to that point. Here Jesus said, I counsel you to buy from me white robes, white garments, the symbol of purity. But these white robes, here's the interesting thing. They have been washed by the blood of Christ. It's kind of, uh, it doesn't even make sense to us. We know that white garment and blood, they don't mix. But Revelation 7, 13 and 14 tells us, one of the angels answered and said to me, who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? And then he goes on to say, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation who washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Now that's talking about the tribulation saints, but the process is still the same, that we wash our robes and make them white by the blood of the lamb. And the nakedness speaks about our sinful condition before God, a God who is holy and righteous, a God who has created us. And without the covering of Jesus Christ, without the covering of that blood, we cannot be properly clothed in the heavenlies. And they counseled them to buy that eye sob, that ointment to put on their eyes. I've already mentioned the man at the pool of Salome, who had the Lord had spit on the ground, he made this clay, he put it on the man's eyes, and he told him to go wash in the pool, and he could see. And that man testified from John 9:27, saying, "One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see." It's through Christ that He gives us this sight. And the question remains: Have you bought the gold that was refined by Jesus? Have you purchased the garment of white? to cover the nakedness of our sin. Have your eyes been anointed that you might see? And Jesus called them to repentance because of his great love for them. He said in verse 19, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Because of his great love, Jesus rebukes. He chastens. He calls us to repentance. 1 Corinthians 11.32 tells us, but when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with this world. When the Lord chastens us, he does that because he loves us. Same thing in our households. 
It should be with parents over their children. When they correct their children or grandchildren, it's because they love them. And they want to see them do good, do right. Jesus said, be zealous. It's a word that means to burn with zeal, to busy oneself in regards to repentance. In Titus 2.14, it tells us, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, purify himself, his own special people, zealous for good works. We should have this zeal. We should be zealous to do the work that the Lord has called us to do. And then he said, verse 20, a famous verse from the book of Revelation. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Now, this verse is often used, especially in evangelical settings where you're trying to call the lost to repentance And the evangelist will say, the Lord Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Whoever opens that door to me, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. The thing is, the Lord is talking to his church here. He's not talking to the unbelievers. He's not talking to the unsaved. He's talking to his church. William Holman In 1853 to 54, he painted his most famous work called The Light of the World. Now, the painting is an allegorical work of Jesus standing at this doorway. And the door is long overgrown with weeds and vines. And he is preparing to knock upon that door. And as you look at the door, there is no handle. In fact, when he revealed the painting someone told him you've made a great mistake you forgot to put a handle on the door and yet the artist responded i painted this picture with what i thought unworthy though i was to be by divine command and not simply just a good subject the door in the painting has no handle and can therefore only be opened from the inside representing the obstinate shut mind. The door has no handle. It has to be opened from the inside. Jesus preparing to knock. I stand at the door and knock. Are we willing to open the door? And remember this verse is talking to his church. Are we willing to open the door? For those who overcome, Jesus promises, verses 21 and 22, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what a great privilege it is to be overcomers. Jesus said that you will be able to sit with me on my throne. Speaks about the ability that the Lord is going to give us to rule and reign with Christ 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. Jesus said, I'll grant you the privilege to sit with me on my throne. Now, this past year, maybe he went a little long, but I have five grandchildren and it's been going down. 
Mackenzie, Nathan, Caleb, and now Josiah. They all went through this phase of getting too big to sit on my lap. It just it happens at some point. And finally, Josiah, he's not. He went from like sitting on my lap to sitting on the arm of the chair to just sitting somewhere else. No longer is he comfortable sitting on Papa's lap. And it happened sometime in the course of the last year. And we made COVID for us. We made it kind of the family night, Sunday nights. We get together and have dinner, usually watch a movie or play games and stuff. And we just, it's been a great year for that, for us. It's worked that way for us. But now I will say that Josiah is not quite yet outgrown sitting and driving my truck in the church parking lot. But he's almost there. We have to push the seat all the way back now. He still squeezes in. He's got to be a good driver one day, but soon he'll be too tall for that. Jesus said you're going to sit on the throne just as I sit with my father on the throne. To the overcomers, he promised this to us. Jesus himself as an overcomer. Through the cross, Jesus set the example in John 16, 32 and 33. He says, yet I am not alone because the father is with me. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus Christ as an overcomer. Jesus saying through his work on the cross, I have overcome this world I am the victor. I have victory. And I offer that victory to you, those who are willing to overcome. The overcomers. May we be those who would hear what the Spirit says to the church in these last days. Now I wanted to close out just taking a brief look historically at the seven churches of the book of Revelation. There are some who have looked at this. And I tied this all the way back. I didn't look through all my books but I went back to kind of a go-to, a couple of books that I cut my teeth on as far as the book of Revelation and dispensational truths of the Bible. There are books that I inherited from my dad, and they're actually original books, and so I treasure them. Uh, they had their printing, my, not that my dad was this old, but however he got his hands on these, they're treasures to me. This book, Dispensational Truth, printed by Clarence Larkin, was published in 1918, and it's a treasure. And then there's a book on the book of Revelation. I think it was printed in 1919. I have both of these original copies. I treasure them. But I looked into the dispensational truths, and Clarence Larkin was an artist, and he had drawn the ages of the church, how they played out in history since the time of Christ. Well, because he was from the 19th and 20th century, the beginning of the 20th century, I didn't rely upon him. I went to Wilmington's Guide to the Bible to kind of pull out some of this information where he looked at the church playing out through the course of history. So I want to review these things. And I've said this all along. I, I've teased you guys for the last three weeks that I was going to do this. And I told Lily after I put it all together, it's like, there's so much there. I don't know how I'm going to get it done. So we're going to try to summarize this as best I can in the time that I have. But I've said all along, some have viewed this 
as the churches, the seven churches playing out through church history since the time of Christ. But I also see this in any church age, we can find one of the seven churches or all of the seven churches right now today. We can find churches that are Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love. We can find churches that are a lot of churches that are Laodicea. They are lukewarm. We can find churches like Sardis who are dead. They think they're alive. They think they have life, but they're dying. They're dead. And so in history, we find the church of Ephesus. Put some of this in your notes, just that you would have us. So from Wilmington's Guide to the Bible, he had Ephesus going from AD 30 to 300 and saying that the name meant desirable, and he called this the Apostle Church, the Apostolistic Age. And he would go on to say this period saw the writings of the entire New Testament and an attempt to evangelize the known Roman world. The heroes of this period include the apostles Paul, Jude, James, Luke, etc. That's the ones he named. We could fill in all of the 11 of the 12 disciples. We could put Apollos, Aquila, and Priscilla. Of course, there were many champions during this church age. To the overcomers, Jesus promised to grant them free access to the tree of life. The church of Smyrna, we find, according to Wilmington, their name means myrrh. They were known as the martyr church. There were one, only two of the seven churches that Jesus did not condemn, but this is probably the most interesting of this. In Revelation 2.10, Scripture tells us, Do not fear any of these things which you are about to suffer. They were already suffering. And then the Lord said, You're going to suffer ten days of tribulation. Be faithful until death, and I will give you a crown of life. So some have looked at this at ten Roman emperors and how they played out not following in secession, but 10 different Roman emperors that persecuted the church during this time. And the last of these 10 was Diocletian. And of Diocletian, who reigned from 284 to 305, it says that it was the last and the most severe persecution against the church. For 10 years, believers were hunted. They lived in caves and in forests. They were burned. They were thrown to the wild beast. They were put to death by every torture, cruelty could devise. But in the end, Diocletian's own wife and daughter came to faith in Jesus Christ. I think the Lord has a great sense of humor sometimes. Jesus promises the overcomers that they would not be hurt by the second death, that they would receive the crown of life. The church of Pergamos. Pergamos, the name meaning marriage, the compromising church. So Wilmington gives this from 314 to 590 A.D. after the death. So 314 to 590, one of the key individuals during this period 
was a soldier named Constantine. We've heard a lot about this. I want to review this. It's so important for us to understand this. He became the Roman emperor because his father, it was his father's dying request. His Roman troops also named him as emperor. But he immediately faced a threat. And so he dreamed, so he says, he dreamed that night of the image of the cross. And by this image, go forth and conquer by this sign, conquer that the sign of the cross. And he was victorious. And so here we have Christianity because of Constantine being accepted. So the compromising church by 313, he signed the edict of toleration. Does any of this toleration intolerant toleration, any of this sound familiar? It's like what goes around comes around, right? So he signs the Edict of Toleration. He granted freedom to Christians. He promised gold. He promised money. White robes. Jesus said, I'll give you white robes. Constantine said, I'll give you white robes. I'll take mine from Jesus, please. Anyways, he promised gold. Man, just like what we read. Buy from me gold, Jesus said. Constantine said, I'll give you gold. I'll give you white robes. Soon pagans joined the church by the thousands, but they brought with them their heathen practices. The church became this. I love this quote. Wilmington said this. The church became so worldly and the world became so churchy that no difference could be seen. That's dangerous when that becomes the case. I think we're beyond that place now. I think maybe 20, 30 years ago, this would have fit. The church then became so worldly and the world so churchy that no difference could be seen. But right now, there is a great difference between the true church of Jesus Christ and that of our world. The overcomers have been counseled. Those who overcome, they would be given to eat of the hidden manna, given white stones with new names. That of Thyatira. Wilmington says from 590 to 1517. Now, I want to just kind of play in, uh, give you a little background on Harold Wilmington. He was the uh, dean of Liberty University for a while. He presented uh, the word of God. He had a through the Bible teaching. I have his information. I have his teachings through the Bible. I've went through his teachings through the Bible he is a Calvinist. He was opposed totally to the Catholic Church. And so he's not very kind. I'm not going to put the very unkind things that he wrote in here, but he's also a Calvinist. And so you can see how that plays out over these next two churches, especially. But here in this church period, 590 through 1517, Wilmington mentioned some of the Catholic Pope, some good, mostly bad. I didn't include them. He also listed some of the heroes, the champions of the faith. John Wycliffe of 1320 to 1384, who was first to translate the entire Bible into English. John Huss from 1369 to 1415, a fearless preacher who, who honored the Bible above the church. He was burned at the stake by the Pope. William Tyndale, 1484 to 1536, 
1525, he printed Wycliffe's translation of the Bible. So he printed the first copy of the New Testament in English that was ever produced. Erasmus, in 1466 to 1536, the great student of the Greek New Testament, and Jesus promised the overcomers of this age that they would rule with him the bright morning star. Jesus, the bright morning star, that those who overcame would rule with him. That of Sardis, the dead church, we find in church history from 1517 to the 1700s, it refers to the remnant, the meaning of the church, or he called it the Reformation church. And he refers to some of the champions, that of Martin Luther, who nailed the 95 Thesis upon the church door on October 31st, 1517, to attack the Catholic Church and their indulgences. And the three great gifts of Luther were this, the universal priesthood of all believers. The Bible is the sole authority for all Christian faith and the justification by faith alone, not by works. So Martin Luther, one of the champions of this period, John Calvin, remember I said that um, I could tell by the writings that Wilmington was a Calvinist. Here are the five points of Calvinism. If you, Maybe it's been a while since you heard the tulip. What do you mean, John? Tulip, that's what they call it. You can spell it out. The acronym, five points of Calvinism. The T for total depravity of man. The U for unconditional election by God. The L, limited atonement that Christ died only for believers, the I, irresistible grace, and the P, the perseverance of the saints, or that of eternal security. And then Wilmington did add, many Christians do not accept all five points of this theology. Now, when I first started learning about this, I was an adult Christian at the time, and I realized that my dad in his church, as he was a pastor, he practiced three of the five points of Calvinism, but not all five points. So I was just able to look back at the things that I had learned and realize that I was in here a little bit, but not all the way. So Jacobus Arnimaeus, he countered this Arminianism, kind of countering Calvinism. He countered this with his five points, and the five points are unrestricted free will, conditional election, universal atonement, resistible grace, and a potential to fall from grace. Now, in the Calvary Chapel movement, we pretty much fall between the two. In fact, some Calvary Chapel pastors have called themselves Calminiists. They created kind of both names. They're in the middle somewhere, and there's some good writings about this. Pastor Chuck produced a booklet on this as well. But uh, producing during this time. To those who overcame, they were promised to be clothed in white garments and that their names would be found in the book of life. And then Philadelphia, in historically 1700s to the 1900s, the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love. Wilmington described this as the revival church. And this is the time where evangelism and 
historically where missionary work went out from the Western churches into throughout the world. Right now, some of the Eastern churches that were evangelized by the Western churches, now they're sending evangelist missionaries back to the West. We need missionaries here in America to preach the truth once again. So this time produced some of the great evangelists like George Whitfield, Charles Spurgeon, John and Charles Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Finney here in the United States, D.L. Moody, um, missionaries like Charles Livingstone, William Carey, and Hudson Taylor during this time. To the overcomers, the Lord Jesus promised that they would be pillars in the temple of God. Remember, Philadelphia had been shaken by a pretty great earthquake prior to the writing of this. It so devastated that area that the Romans did not require taxes upon the people that they could rebuild their towns and cities. And the Lord said, you will never be shaken out of my temple. And so they were known for these earthquakes. The Lord said, you're going to be stable in my house. I love that. I found stability when I came to faith in Jesus Christ. Finally, to the lukewarm church, we looked at that today, but in the period that we find ourselves, it's now. If we want to historically look at this, it is the 1900s, Wilmington says, until the rapture. But I want you to listen to what he wrote. He wrote this back in 1985. And if he felt this way in 1985, just think about how he wrote these words. Little comments is needed to describe the sad state of Christendom as it exists today. Many groups which brazenly carry the name of Christianity seem to prefer communism to democracy, encourage immorality, support anarchy, downplay every important biblical doctrine, ridicule Bible believers, and in general, literally fulfill Paul's Prediction when he wrote, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Does any of that sound familiar? That was written back in 1985. And I, I tell you, he had me right there, prefer communism over democracy. Yeah, we're right here. And then he went on to say, here was his hope. And what was happening back then was the Jesus movement. It was at the tail end of the Jesus movement. It's what got me into the Calvary Chapel movement, many others. Wilmington being part of Liberty University, not part of the same movement that we were, not part of the church culture that we were involved with, with Calvary Chapel, but I believe the same movement touching in the lives of the various churches. He said, however, it must be quickly added that a small but powerful and growing minority of individuals in the local churches and schools are demonstrating love for the scriptures, the Savior, the souls of men rarely seen in the church history. These schools and churches are filled with people who have heard him knock and have gladly opened wide their doors. I'd heard a report this week that, you know, we have the all the different various, the baby boomers, the millennials, the you know, they go on and on, and they're saying right now that I'd heard this the week that we have a youth in our nation right now that they're seeing what's going on in the world, and they're saying, I want none of it. 
Now, sometimes it doesn't appear that we see it that way, but there are some teens that are saying, I want truth, and there are some that are looking to Jesus. How we need that to take place in our society today. Jesus promised the overcomers that as the Lord stood at the door of the church and knocks, he promised that they would come and sit with him on his throne. Father, we pray that that would be the case for us, that we would be those overcomers. Lord, if you are speaking to your church today, to us as individuals or the church as a whole, and Lord, it is as the church of Laodicea, you're saying to us, I stand at the door and knock, and he who opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Lord, if you are knocking and we have not opened, I pray, Lord, that we'd open our hearts to you this day. And Father, maybe it's someone who's never received you as Savior, but they realize the great need that they have for you. Lord, I pray that they would come to you in life-saving faith. This day, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand together. I want to just speak to our radio and Facebook audience that if you have questions regarding faith, please email us at cclv at comcast.net cclv at comcast.net we would love to just share and answer your questions share christ with you so you can email us at cclv at comcast.net have a few people who are new here this is routine for us here on sunday mornings we go through our church motto and so we're gonna go through it together and read the scripture together you guys always do better than me but i'll try I'm always moving on to the next point too soon, so I'll give you the format. I will say believe, and I'll say something briefly about that motto point, and then we'll say together Hebrews 11.6, say the verse, and then finish Hebrews 11.6, and then we'll move on to the next point. I will say receive, give us a little um, idea of that, and then we'll say the verse together. I'm usually moving on a lot quicker than I'm supposed to. But you guys are training me, so I'll get it one day. Maybe. So here at Calvary Chapel of Lake Villa, we have a motto of believe, receive, grow, and go. The believe is simply this, that before you can express your faith in Jesus Christ, you have to believe that God is. And we say together, Hebrews 11:6. but without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Hebrews 11:6. After believing that God is, then it's necessary to receive Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life. We say together, Romans 5:17. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. I told you I don't do it well. You have to receive Jesus. There are a lot of people in our world today that believe that there is a God, but they fall short in receiving Jesus Christ as their Savior. Once a believer, we have to grow in our faith. We say together, 2 Peter 3:18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Second Peter 3.18. And finally, we have to go. We have to share our faith with others. We say together, Matthew 28.19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. So we're going to close out in a a song of worship, and we're just going to celebrate the work that the Lord has done in our midst today. Again, if you have a prayer need, please email us at cclv at comcast.net if you're here. You can just talk with me. Pray for those who are traveling over the next few weeks. Kevin and Melissa, their family, on vacation this week. The dues will not be around for the next couple of weeks as well. And so we're going to miss them. So it's that time of the year. So pray for those who are traveling. So let's close out in a song of worship. Oh, uh-huh.